You're always destined to disappoint after an introduction like that. <laughs> Lower the expectations, Josh. Don't raise them. Good morning. I want you to picture for a moment someone that you have a lot in common with. You have a lot in common. We often say, I have so much in common with this person. Uh, who is that? Is it a spouse, a sibling, a friend or a roommate, maybe a classmate? Uh, someone that you grew up with, that you have a lot in common with. And this morning we're going to be looking at a description of the early church where they had a lot in common, and I want us to notice how we use that phrasing. Oh, we have so much in common. What do we mean? We might mean, oh, we have the same taste in music, or in movies, or we like the same kinds of food. Uh, maybe we like the same hobbies. Uh, maybe we're at the same life stage where we're doing things the same way, uh, maybe God has us on a common path of following Jesus. That's what we mean when we say we have a lot in common. Uh, but to the early church, it meant something a little different. We're in this series looking at the book of Acts, and the question we keep asking is, what was their community like? What did they communicate? What would their life look like? And how did this small band of people lead to a movement that took the way of Jesus to the ends of the earth? And what could we learn about our own way of living together as the people of God? Uh, last week, Josh was speaking to us from Acts chapter 2, and there, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives a summary of what the life looked like of this early uh, believing church. This is very early on after the event of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit has come down on the church, and Peter has delivered this powerful message, and people have come to faith, 3,000 on the same day. And we said last week that a lot of it is familiar to us what they did. It's not much different than what we do. They devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship. They were breaking bread together. They were eating together. They were praying. They were praising God. They had favor with the people, and the Lord was adding to their number. But last week, Josh pointed out there was something that might look different to us. There was these signs and wonders being performed in the community, just like the ministry of Jesus had been marked by miracles and healings and even exorcisms, this continued in the early church. And the question he asked is, should we expect the same in our churches? If you want to know the answer to that, go back and listen to last week's message. This week, we're going to push forward in the other thing that might be a little different. And that is how they held everything together in common. You see, it says the believers were together and had all things in common, but it didn't just mean that they liked the same things, it meant they literally held their possessions in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to any as they had need. That is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Will you pray with me this morning as we open up uh, Acts chapter 4 and 5 and ask God to teach us? Oh Lord, we have listened to everyone else's voice and they have left us wanting more. Only you have the words that satisfy our soul. And so we make this choice. We want to hear your voice. And Lord, we ask that through the reading of your word that we might not just encounter you, that our hearts might not be just open to you, but that it would lead us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers. Grant this to us, O Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen. 
The scripture that we read this morning is in Acts chapter 4, and there Luke gives a similar summation of the life of the early church, and he expands on this same theme. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Yes, they were unified. They had a common unity, a community, but it resulted in something. It said, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. They held their possessions in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Yes, the word was being proclaimed, but it was evidenced in the deeds that were happening. It was both word and deed. Is that different than our experience, that we would hold everything in common? I mean, think about our culture Our culture is based in the idea that everyone is their own individual person and everybody needs to own their own individual stuff. Uh, The idea of sharing stuff just seems weird to us. Uh, That we might, for example, share clothing. Like we just get creeped out by that idea. Like that somebody else would have something that belongs to me. Only after I've disposed of it and given it away can someone else wear it. But don't let me see it. Don't let me see that happening, right? Um, While I was preparing this message, I kept hearing this leaf blower. I have a neighbor uh, that loves his leaf blower. Um, (laughs) He loves it so much, no joke, he crosses the street and starts blowing the sidewalk across the street. Uh, Pretty soon he's going to blow the entire neighborhood with this leaf blower. And I know how much he loved it. And I, I just was thinking if I walked over to him and said, could I borrow that? Like, how strange would that be? How strange for both of us. For him, he would think, this is a weird thing. If you just leave it over there, and anytime I want to borrow it, I'll just come and pick it up and just kind of, you know, do a little leaf blowing. Like, that would freak him out. It would freak me out. The whole way across the street to ask him, I'd be talking myself out of it the whole way. Like, he's not, he's not going to say yes. He's not going to do this. I shouldn't do this. What am I going to do? As a good American, I'm going to buy my own leaf blower. Because we can't hold things in common, even something I might use once or twice a year. He's using it every week. Um, (laughs) Or think this morning, you walk out and you're having coffee and you meet somebody new and you say, oh, welcome, welcome to our church. How are you doing? They're saying, well, actually, uh, I'm doing well, but I I just started a job and I don't have a car. Can I borrow yours? Uh, We would think, how dare you, you know? Uh, We might call somebody and say, I think we need to talk, there's something going on over here. I don't know, somebody just showed up to our church and wants to borrow a car. This is exactly what was happening in the early church. They were holding all of their possessions in this way, loosely with an open hand. And something was resulting when this happened. Read on with me. It says, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had need. I want to focus on two things that are going on here that are, that are things that we should pay attention. The first is this statement that there was not a needy person among them. This is in some way a shocking statement. It may be the only time it appears in the scripture that there was ever a time that there was not a needy person in the midst of the community. Back in Deuteronomy 15, God had promised that there would be no needy people if if people followed the Lord's commands, if every seven years all debts were forgiven. You could loan a friend someone, and if you loaned in the fifth or sixth year, you knew that when the seventh year came, debts were forgiven. You weren't going to get repaid. 
Every 50 years, everyone was repossessed with their land. If they had sold their land or lost their land or lost their ancestral home, they were going to get it back every 50 years. Imagine if someone knocks on your door and says, uh, this used to belong to us. It's time for us to take it back now. It's the 50 years. You know, I mean, just think of how that would feel in our society. And we were to open our hands, the Lord told us. Open your hands in generosity to the needy, to your brother, and don't oppress the worker. Pay fair wages. And all throughout the scripture, this was, if you do these things and live this way, there will not be a needy person among you. But we know from the testimony of the prophets that this was not done. That there was always needy people because people refused to follow the way of the Lord. And so for Luke to write and to record for us that there was not a needy person among them is a shocking statement by itself, but it shows what happens when people hold things with an open hand, hold things in common, and do this next thing. For those who did have some wealth, most of this was probably generational wealth. They'd inherited land. They'd inherited a home. And it says that they brought it when they sold it and they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And this description is going to come up a couple times in this passage, this idea of how are we to give? Mechanically, what are we to do? To lay it at the apostles' feet. Now, whether they literally took a bag of the proceeds and walked into the community and laid it at the apostles' feet, some people think that's actually what happened, as we'll see in this story. But the idea is more this idiomatic expression of, I've released it. I've done my part. My part was to steward this well, this wealth that has been given to me, or this amount that I've created, this, this land that I invested in, I have done my part, which is to manage it well for the Lord. I have done my part, which is to be generous, to sell it. I have done my part to come and bring it and leave it at your feet, and I trust you to do well with it and distribute it to those people who have needs. So often, I think our hand follows the gift. And instead of laying it at the apostles' feet, or in our time, it might be laying it at the elders' feet, we want to know, where is it going? What are you going to do with it? Show me a pie chart that shows how much is the administrative cost? How much is the overhead for this ministry? Show me where it's going. Are you going to pave the parking lot with it? As if having a nice, safe, comfortable place to park so that people could come to grief share or to celebrate recovery, or to enter into this sanctuary isn't by itself a ministry uh, that brings people closer to God. But we want to control it sometimes and direct it and remain in charge of it. And it might be our own feeling of like, I know best what to do with this. And the model that's given to us here, let's not miss it, is to lay it at the apostles' feet and say, I've done my part and I surrender it to you. Now, we're to be good stewards and we're to make sure that we are in a trustworthy community. Of course, we're not to do this blindly. But if you sit in a community under its teaching, under its collective worship, under its activities, under its fellowship, but don't trust that it's going to do well with what the Lord has entrusted to it, you're in the wrong place. Uh, this is part and parcel with belonging to a good community. So this is the model that is given to us and when this is done, we see an example. Now, Luke is going to give two examples, a positive example and a negative example. Here's the positive example. He says, now, therefore, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him. 
and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So exactly the principle that Luke is recording, he shows an example of someone who's done this. Now, in the book of Acts, we're going to see Barnabas several times. He really is an encourager. He becomes an encourager to the apostle Paul when he first has his conversion experience and he's ministering. He introduces him to the apostles in Jerusalem. He vouches for him. He becomes his partner in the missionary journeys. He mentors a young man named John Mark, who many believe wrote the first gospel of Mark. So he is an encourager, but the first time we meet him, we meet him as a generous man who has gone back to the island of Cyprus where he's from to sell a piece of property and come to the apostles in Jerusalem. So it takes some effort to do this and lays this at the apostles' feet and this is given to us as a good example. You know, when I was reading this, before we go on to the negative example, the one that's not so positive, I wondered if this was just something that was happening for a short time. We know that the Spirit has been poured out on the church in a mighty way. In fact, just before these verses, in verse 31, uh, the apostles are praying together and the house is shaken by the power of the Spirit. So we know the Spirit is powerfully present. So is this description just something that was going on for a few years at the birth of the church? And the answer is no. This has marked Christian community for centuries. In fact, the historian Rodney Stark, who, who's also looking at how did Christianity spread from this small band of disciples to reach the ends of the world, to reach the Roman Empire, how did it spread? He observes that this practice of meeting the needs was one of the key factors that was going on. Uh, he cites the Roman Emperor Julian. Uh, Julian was the last Roman Empire that was not a convert to Christianity. So this is in 361 or 2, and he is trying to restore the Roman pantheon, and he's looking around at the empire, and more and more people are converting to Christianity, and this troubles him. He wants to see a restoration of the old ways, of the Roman pagan gods, but he realizes it's an uphill battle. He looks out and he says, these impious Galileans, the word he uses for Christians, these Christians, in addition to their own poor, they support ours. And it is shameful that our poor should be wanting for our aid. This is 300 plus years later. This is still going on. And we know from our history, if we look back at the church, that so many of the healing ministries and the need-based ministries, even to this day, we just heard the announcements earlier today, to meet the needs of people who have needs in our community has always been part of what it means to teach and preach the gospel in word and deed. And this was happening at this time. And it continued on. This was not a one-time thing. It's good for us to remember that, that we are still doing this work. The question is, are we doing it in the same way? Are we open-handed in this way? And can we be more to see more done? You know, it wasn't just meeting needs. Uh, the Christians, whenever a plague would descend on a city, they would be the ones that would run in to care for the sick, often themselves getting sick and dying, while the Roman citizenry, and especially the medical profession, would flee the city, right? And this was a model that brought so many people to say, I want to know what these people are about. Okay. So we have a positive example of Barnabas and we say this is how we should do it. Let's look at a different example. This is an example about a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. 
But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now notice he's done two-thirds of the formula so far, right? He's sold a piece of property, and he's laid it at the apostles' feet. And to everybody else, he looks just like Barnabas. But what has he done that's a little bit different? He's kept back some of it. Now, we don't know how much he kept back. I'm going to surmise that it wasn't a lot. Maybe it was a good amount. I'm going to say 30, 40% maybe he kept back. Why do I think that? Because he came and laid at the apostles' feet, and they probably had some indication that he had sold a piece of property, so it had to be a good amount, right? So let's just say for the sake of our discussion that he uh, gave 60% of it. Uh, he expected a pat on the back. Uh, he expected to be praised for this. That's why he did it publicly. He sold it, walked in, dun, da, 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 and he lays it at the apostles' feet and thinks everyone is going to be impressed with him the way they were with Barnabas. Maybe he gets a cool name. He doesn't like Ananias. He'll get a new name, you know? But Peter said, Ananias, you got, you're going to keep your name. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? That's not what he was expecting. Would we expect that? I mean, think for a moment. Imagine somebody in our congregation sells a piece of property here in the San Gabriel Valley or sells a home and comes and brings 60% of it and lays it at the elder's feet we'd make him an elder. We might give him a parking spot with their name on it, you know? We might think, you know, we haven't yet named the gallery or the coffee bar. Maybe we could get that little action going, right? Uh, maybe we'll rename the O'Burn Room. I'm not even sure who that is, so sorry if that's personal. Or I mean, maybe we'll just rename that, you know? I mean, if we could do that, we'd be doing that all day, right? He gets called a liar, that is not what he's expecting. What has he done? He has feigned generosity. He has pretended to be generous. He's done a public act that everyone knew what it meant. If you did this, this means you brought all of the proceeds and you laid them down. And notice what Peter's saying to him. You didn't have to do this. Yes, we hold everything in common in our community, but this is not an exercise in socialism. This is not a government-mandated program. This is the generosity of God. You voluntarily give what you want to cheerfully give to the Lord. Remember, the Lord has given you everything. Everything belongs to the Lord. Psalm 24, 1 says, all of the earth belongs to the Lord, everything in it. And we are only returning to the Lord what the Lord has given to us, right? So you can decide to do this. And he says to him, like, while it remained unsold, wasn't it yours? You could have just kept it. And even after you sold it, you didn't have to walk in and deposit it in this dramatic way saying this is the entire amount. You could have just held on to the amount and decided what you wanted to give. It was your choice to do, but what you have done is to publicly declare this is all of the amount, but by your action. And you want the praise of the people. You want to be known in this way and you're faking generosity. Do we do that sometimes? where we participate in actions that look generous to be seen by others, which Jesus also said we should not do. So this is a lie, Peter says. 
But notice what else he says. You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Yeah, that's, that's right. He died. <laughs> um, if you're somebody who brought somebody to church for the first time this morning, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you've never heard this story before and you thought, man, it sounded so happy at the beginning, like utopia, uh, here's the twist. He fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. You think? There's some statements in the scriptures that I just think, duh. <laughs> and great fear came upon all who heard it. Maybe that's true this morning. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Luke doesn't let us off the hook quite so quickly. He goes on. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door now, and they will carry you out also. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Again, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. What are we to make of these examples? The examples, to be clear, are the examples of the early church because Luke is clearly recording this to say this is what the life of the early church looked like. I'm recording it so that we might have it and know what their life was like. That's an example. Then we have the example of Barnabas who followed the path that was kind of laid out for those who had something to give. And the other example is the example of Ananias and Sapphira. What are we to make of these examples? So, as all sermons must do, I'm going to make three points. <laughs> um, and to please Pastor Robert, they all start with R, so that there's alliteration to them. In fact, they start with R-E, if you pay attention. R-E, every one of them. Um, so, uh, this will be uh, in line with Christchurch sermons. The first, I think we need to pause for a moment as we observe what we could learn from these examples, is we need to recognize the grip that our possessions have over us. Um, it is true that we have a grip on our possessions, but it is more true that our possessions often have a grip on us. Jesus said that a servant could not serve two masters. Either he'll love one and hate the other, or he'll love this one and hate the first, but you cannot serve two masters. And then he says, you cannot serve both God and possession. He could have filled in that blank with a lot of things. You can't serve God and this, God and that. But he said God and possession because I think he knew that nothing competes for our allegiance as much as our stuff. You can test this out anytime you want to clean something out. You ever tried this? You want to clean out a closet or a garage? Uh, clean out the junk drawer? Anybody have a junk drawer? Like I have a junk drawer and every so often I open it, I go, this stuff has got to go. I don't even know what's in here. 
I don't even know what we're gonna use a flip phone for anymore, right? <laughs> Why do I still have this stuff in the junk drawer? So I open it up and I pull out the first thing and I've got like Goodwill and then trash, right? And I pick up the first thing and I put it down and my hand starts to shake, right? And I keep, and, and you, I'm gonna need that next week, right? As soon as I throw this away, I'm going to need it. Now, some of you are like experts at this. You are saints in a different way. I don't understand you. But me, I'm in the garage. It's been sitting there for three years. I'm ready to get rid of it. And I put it, I've actually thrown it away. I've thrown it away and then I look into the abyss. And I, I just start realizing that I'm going to need it, right? And I pull it back out. It has come back out and sat for three more years, right? Anyone with me? This is the grip that our stuff has on us, and we need to recognize that in our context, in our country. Our entire economic system is built on you needing stuff and more stuff and your own stuff and not sharing stuff and replacing stuff over and over and over. Literally, the economy comes to a halt if we don't follow this path. Every time the economy tanks is because consumer confidence went down. It's because consumer consumption went down. And they'll do anything. The government will stimulate us. Think of that word, stimulate us, to keep acquiring stuff to keep the economy going. And so our stuff has a grip on us. We need to recognize that. Um, I've traveled to other countries and I've talked to believers in other countries about the idea we have in this country called the storage unit. Have you ever heard of this? This is such a weird concept to people in other cultures. You go, yeah, you know, in our country, we have so much stuff that we don't want that we actually rent houses for them to put the stuff we don't want so it doesn't clutter the house that we live in, right? And we pay rent to store things we don't need. And we don't visit, it's like a cemetery of stuff, like row after row after row of concrete structures, right? Mausoleums of stuff. And we don't visit except to put more stuff and see what we can shove into the back, right? This is the grip our stuff has on us, right? What is our response? What is our response? It's to practice this aspect of holding our hands open. That when we share, it's an act of defiance against the grip that our stuff has on us. And it is a spiritual act of opening our hands and being generous and sharing together what we do have. And I'm gonna tell you, it's going to feel weird when someone says, can I borrow your vehicle? But it's an act of spiritual defiance against this grip to say, I need to find a way to live on the one car I have and share it for a while to let somebody else use this for a while or whatever it may be. Think about something, I'm gonna be asking us to do that. Years ago, in another young adult ministry that I led, we had a young woman who was arrested and jailed because she had stolen from a family member uh, to support her drug habit. Uh, she was in prison. I went to visit her, and we wrote letters to each other, and I was trying to minister her while she was in jail, and then she was released. And I heard that she was living in her car because no one would take her in. And I started struggling with whether we should open up our home to her. We had an extra room. In fact, I think we had two. And I struggled because all I could think of was what if she steals from me? And I'm going to tell you to my shame, I did not take her in. I was content to let her stay somewhere far away. Like, I'll visit her in prison. I'll write letters, but I don't want you touching my stuff. 
I was comfortable doing it from a distance. Are we the same? Will we raise money for people who are challenged in housing but not afford them housing? Is that something that speaks to us in the way that we want to hold things at a distance and not open up our hands? Now, of course, there are saints among us that do this. I know in this congregation there are people who open up their homes and let people come and stay so they can get on their feet. I know there are people in this congregation that have loaned vehicles. I know there are people in this congregation who have put down the first month deposit to get somebody into a place or to pay the security deposit. And I'm not meaning that they say go to the church and get the benevolence fund. I mean, they themselves have reached into their own possessions and shared, I know that. We call them saints. We say, oh, those people are saints. And under our breath, we're thinking silently, we don't say it out loud, we say, I could never do that. But this scripture is telling us, yes, we can. The lie is that we could never do that. No, no, in the power of the Spirit, we can all open up our hands. And if you're somebody this morning who's like, but I'm the person in need, that's right. You should be part of this community where the need would have been met because all of us open up our hands and meet needs. There are times when you will be in need and someone else will be able to meet it. I know that Barnabas, when he laid down that amount, he probably thought, well, I can do this. I don't need the security of holding on to this. Why? Because all the needs are being met. And if one day I'm needy, my needs will be met. And we don't have to all hold on so tightly out of fear. Second, I think this passage causes us to reflect on the holiness of God. And we would be remiss if we didn't just for a moment reflect on what's going on here. Uh, These people have lied to the Holy Spirit of God and they have received the judgment and the punishment immediately in their death. And that shakes us a little bit because I know you're thinking what I'm thinking, which is how many times have I lied? Um, I might not make it through this sermon because I've done worse than lie. And, and I'm worried about that. And you might be too. But it does cause us to reflect on God's holiness because we might lose sight of it from time to time. Um, Moses, who knew God, it says metaphorically, as somebody who spoke to someone face to face was so intimately close to God, received the law from God, said, Lord, can I see your glory? God said, you cannot see me and live. I am that holy and apart from you. Come here, stand in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand and I'll declare my name over you, but you cannot see my face. One of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament is Isaiah. And when he's being called in Isaiah 6, he has a vision. He's not actually in the throne room of God. He has a vision that he's seeing God in his throne room. And he says, I'm a dead man. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in a land of people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord like I'm done. And the Lord graciously singes his lips to show that I am saving you and I'm sending you out to speak for us. In 2 Samuel 6, the Ark of the Covenant, if you can't picture that, this Old Testament way of God representing his presence in the midst of his people, just think of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, something like that. They, they have the Ark, but it's been stolen in battle, and as they're bringing it back, they're doing something good, like they've recovered it. God said, this is a sign of my holiness. You must construct it a certain way. You must carry it a certain way. Don't treat this flippantly. But they were just so excited to get it back. They put it on an ox cart. They're moving it through. And as it's going along the road, it starts to tip over. And a young man puts up his hand to stop it. 
And he's struck dead immediately because the instruction is you never touch the ark. But, but I was trying to stop it. I didn't want it to fall to the ground. You forget my holiness, reminds the Lord from time to time. And this happens several times in the scripture. But here's what I want to say this morning to bring us back to uh, a little focus here. This is rare. We should say clearly this is rare. By God's grace, this does not happen every single day. By God's grace and all the access that we have to him, and even here in the New Testament, as we are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, as he's come on the church, as he's given us his very presence, this is rare, but I also want to say it's not unheard of. And the thing we should reflect on sometimes is, do we get too complacent with a holy God? Are we in danger? And just reflect for a moment with me. Are we in danger of being callous towards God? Are we in danger of being callous towards obeying him? Are we flippant about our sin where we would die if our friend found out what we were doing? But we have no qualms about the fact that God sees all and sees through us. Is that something that we need to just reflect on? Are we more concerned about how others see us and not how God sees us? Do we make God too safe? Too much of a buddy? C.S. Lewis, when he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, has this scene that a lot of people cited as a good example of this. Uh, Lucy finds out that Aslan, the great lion, who's the representative of Jesus uh, in the story, that Aslan's actually a lion, not a person. And this surprises her because she's a little bit worried. And she says, a lion, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Of course he isn't safe, he's a lion but he's good. He's the king. And when we encounter this text, if we drove right over it or just excused it or just said that was a one-time thing and only happened at the beginning of the church, could never happen again, we would be falling into an error of defeating the very power of the words that are here that we might need to reflect on God's holiness for a moment and ask, are we in danger of just being too flippant about our ways? Thankfully, God has made a way of forgiveness of all sin and assured us of this. And for the vast, 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 vast majority of us, this is not our reality, but I believe Luke recorded it for a reason. Third, we should realize what God has made possible in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say some things that he made possible, but I'm going to give you the headline so you don't lose it. He's made it possible for us to live this way where we can meet the needs of others. How has he done that? First, what God has done in Jesus is he's come into the world to reveal himself to us. Now we know him. We say that Jesus Christ is God's greatest revelation to us, that there won't be anything better, that we will see God as we see Jesus. That through the death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ has made it possible for the Holy Spirit of God to live in us. He said, if I don't go away, I cannot send you the comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit of God. And that Holy Spirit comes to live in us, so we have this closeness to God, always. And at the same time, that Holy Spirit is working in us to transform us. Plain English, 
If we struggle with opening up our hands in a generous way, the good news in this way is the Holy Spirit is at work inside of us doing that work and changing us. So this isn't just something we have to hear and beat ourselves up over, that there is a power at work in you that is going to bring this about if we open ourselves up to allow this to go on. God will do what God will do. And there are many of us who have testified how it is that we started in a way where we held on tightly, where we could not give freely. And over time, yes, in obedience, trying a little bit at a time, expanding what we're doing, we look back over years and we think, I can't believe what the Lord has done to my heart and how it is that I've become this generous, this open, this willing to share. This was not me. That's right. It was not you. It was the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in you. And Jesus has made this possible. The good news of saying, I'm sending you the Spirit so that this can happen in your life. And then the Holy Spirit also becomes the mark of our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And what that means is not only are we his children, but we're going to inherit his kingdom. So think about that. That God is saying, I'm giving you this inheritance. You don't need to worry about holding on to every single thing. What's coming is beyond your comprehension of goodness that I'm going to shower on my children. The scripture says we're co-heirs with Christ. Heirs in the inheritance, right? And in that way, we can start to loosen our grip and open our hand more openly. And this makes us free, free to finally be those people who are God's provision to the world. We're free to loosen our grip on our stuff and we're free to be agents of him in the world. You know, there's times when I listen to my young adults and and also adults. When we see all the need in the world, we're tempted to shake our fist at God and say, how is it that you could allow all of this need Some might even be tempted to say, I cannot believe in you when there is all this need going on in the world and you could take care of it. Now, I shudder to think that I'm going to speak for the Lord, but I just imagine him at times saying, how is it that you can allow all this need in the world? I have blessed you with so much. Just think for a moment of our own country. Never mind the rest of the other developed nations. Just think of the wealth that has been entrusted to this one nation. The sociologist Christian Smith at Notre Dame has written that if Christians in just the U.S. and only dedicated Christians would actually tithe their income, he's created a list of all the needs that would be met around the world, and it is astonishing. And after you read the list and you're moved by it, at the end of the list, he says, and this would be year one. And that would be the way that the Christian community could be marked, radically generous, open with our hands, taking care of needs across the world with just what he's entrusted to us. What God has done in Jesus and in sending the spirit to us frees us up to finally be God's agents if only we would follow in the way that he's given and if only we would allow the spirit to do his work in us. I'll close with this. Luke also, in writing his gospel, part one, records Jesus saying something very, very similar, not surprising. 
The church has always been the body of Christ and embodying his work in the world. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, fear not, little flock. Isn't that really what it is? Fear that we're not enough, we won't have enough, won't be there for us, that we're just afraid to let go. He says, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You're gonna get the kingdom. What are you holding on to? Therefore, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'm going to invite our band to come up. And I'm going to make one more statement before we pray, and then I'm going to pray for it. Some of this might be overwhelming, even with three points that begin with R. You might not remember them all. So I'm just going to say this. During this time of worship and prayer, maybe what the Lord will do is bring to mind one thing, one thing that you hold on to that you can share. Just a concrete thing. And then it would turn into many more. But start with that. And if you're somebody who's already sharing quite a bit, then ask, Lord, where do I go further until I am able to sell all and lay it at the apostles' feet? Let's pray together. Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit and not through our effort only. Will you bring to mind right now the place where you want to deal with us personally and say, yes, this is an area that I have richly blessed you in. This is an area, it might be a talent, it might be a gift, it might be resources, it might be time. There's something that I can share even more than I've done. Maybe I've offered you the things I'm comfortable sharing and now point your finger, Lord, in my life at one more thing so that we might become a community that is known as holding things in common and meeting needs, not just here, but of all the citizenry around us. Let us be known in the same way, Lord. Let us see your word and deed going to the ends of the earth uh, because of the work you do in our lives. We welcome that this morning, Lord, and do it in the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.